turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. God willing, we will finish in another two to three years. So <laughs> if uh, you want to go on holidays, you know, for a couple of weeks here this summer, but you're worried that we might somehow get through chapter 24 and you'll miss out on the end times, don't worry about it, you know. Just go have your vacation, come back, we'll be maybe one or two verses further along. That's the joy of expositional preaching. I I love to go into the Word and to pull out everything that is there for us. Of course, we know, having been in Matthew 23 for the last, oh, four or five, six weeks now, um, that uh, Jesus is very careful to denounce false teachers. And he points to the real, significant, lasting, and in many cases, eternally damaging consequences of their spiritual abuse. So we're continuing our way through that. We're going to pick it up this morning here, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. So uh, we'll read, and then we'll pray, and we will then get to work. Let's take a look. Jesus makes the statement, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your heartbeat is to speak to us, that you have longed from eternity past that your children would be with you and would enjoy an intimate relationship with you. We thank you, God, for your heart to speak to us. Lord, we're sorry that we don't match your heart with our hearts in terms of desiring to hear you to the same degree as you desire to talk with us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your taking the initiative, for you loving us when we had no love in our hearts for you. You are so good to us. We just praise and glorify you this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, as well for sending us prophets, messengers, and teachers to speak your word into our lives. Father, this morning we just freely confess that sometimes we look for people to teach us things that we really want to hear rather than teaching us the things that you would say to us. And Father, we're easily led astray, deceived and taken captive by false teaching. We pray, God, that as we hear your son speak to us this morning, that we would recognize we have a responsibility to test those who would presume to speak on your behalf, that we would have instruction from Christ this morning in terms of looking at their lives, looking at their balanced approach to your word. Help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of you that we may apply appropriate tests of discernment to those who presume to speak on your behalf. We pray, God, you'd open our eyes and do this work in our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think it was last week or the week before I made the statement, you know, you need to be evaluating the people who are preaching and teaching you uh, according to the word. You need to be testing them. And uh, one of you this past week made the very kind, very gracious statement to me. I don't know that I really want to be testing you. I, I think you're a great guy, and I just, 
I just like to sit back and listen. And I appreciate those sentiments. I think that it's important that you have confidence in your pastor. I think it's appropriate that you be able to take him at his word, be able to trust his leadership. Those are all good things. But when it comes to spiritual leadership, whereas in any other profession you might give somebody the benefit of the doubt, you never give a teacher of God's word the benefit of the doubt. They have to earn your confidence. Whereas you might take your laundry to the dry cleaners and they might overcharge you and you might give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe they just made a mistake in overcharging me and you go back and you you talk to them and they, they sort it out. Where you might give the individual doing your dry cleaning the benefit of the doubt, whereas you might give the carpenter that's working on your house the benefit of the doubt if he makes a mistake. You need to always be carefully scrutinizing the person who initially comes into your life for a period of time. There's no benefit of the doubt Because the things that are preached and the things that are taught from the pulpit, they have eternally significant consequences. And so your pastor shouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt. He needs to earn your confidence. Some people say, I'm not so sure about that. Jesus commands it. I don't want you to flip there. I had a whole bunch of scriptures. We're going to throw them up on the screen, but it's not working this morning. So I just want you to listen. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, speaking to the church at Ephesus, makes the statement to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for testing the spiritual leaders who call themselves apostles, who come to them presuming to speak on God's behalf. And Jesus says, you tested them to find out whether or not that was really true. And he commends them. This isn't just a practice that's given to the church in the New Testament. This has been true historically throughout the history of Revelation. In the Old Testament, we find God speaking to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 13. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. In other words, if he says he can work a miracle and he actually can work a miracle, and then he says to you, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you. He's testing you to know whether or not you're testing them. He is testing you to know whether or not you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God. You shall fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. The Bible says that God is testing you to see whether or not you love him with all that you are And one of the ways that you do it is you test those who claim to speak on his behalf, whether or not they will speak according to his word. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 23, in each denunciation of the Pharisees and the scribes, in each woe that he assigns to them, in each criticism that he places on them, inadvertently, or, or actually I should say intentionally, what he is doing is he is giving to us, the church, 
tests by which we can discern whether or not teachers who presume to speak on behalf of God are legitimate or whether or not they are false. And here in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he makes the statement that the blind guides, the Pharisees who are blind, in verse 24, they're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. One of the things that we can look for in those individuals who presume to speak on God's behalf is whether or not they take a balanced approach, not only in their walk with God, but in their dealings with the flock, with the congregation, with the people that they are leading. Jesus makes this statement in verse 24 that one of the issues with the blind guides, he uses metaphorical language, they are straining out gnats but swallowing camels. Now, both creatures, in Leviticus, it's very clear, both creatures are what God calls unclean creatures. They are used by him to symbolize impurity. This gnat is the smallest of all impure creatures. You're not supposed to eat gnats. But the largest of all impure creatures is the camel. And Jesus' statement here is, these guys who presume, who presume to lead Israel and speak on God's behalf, what they do in their personal walk with the Lord is, metaphorically speaking, they're careful to strain out all of the gnats, all of the small, microscopic, almost hard to, hard to see, almost impossible to see gnats because they're so concerned about their purity. But in the process of straining out those things, they happily, gleefully swallow full-sized camels. Now, they're not actually doing this. This is a metaphor to speak to two spiritual practices that they're engaging in. First spiritual practice is tithing, but the other, what Jesus calls weightier matter of the law, in verse 23, the matter of dealing with those around them with mercy and justice and faithfulness, that they are totally neglecting. We've seen it as we've walked through Matthew. With regards to how they treat people, They are harsh, they are condemning, they are unkind, they are ruthless. There is a standard which they demand that everyone measure up to, and they themselves will not do anything to actually help those people. And yet, when it comes to something like tithing, they are absolutely meticulous. Jesus makes a statement here in verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are the smallest household seeds within a garden. These are the, the seasonings that you know, are just microscopic and small. To put it to you in uh, 21st century understanding, it would be like me not only tithing 10% on my paycheck. It would be like me going to my pantry, opening my pantry, pulling out a, a package of noodles, of pasta, as well as my peanut butter and saying, I want the Lord to have all that I have. I want him to be entitled to everything. You know, he gets a tenth of everything. And I would take my package of pasta, my dried noodles, and I'd siphon off about 10% and I'd crack open that jar of peanut butter and I'd look at it and I'd try to scoop out about 10% of that. And when the ushers pass the bag down the aisle, I'd take it and spoon it in and Dump it in there. Ushers, how many of you would like to count that as part of the weekly offering? I'm just curious, you know, would that not be a wonderful surprise to have members of our congregation putting foodstuffs into the, uh, into the velvet bags as they come around? These guys did that sort of thing. We would call it a feat of spiritual discipline that has as its goal not the honoring of God but the exaltation of self. It has as its goal not 
the point of worshiping the Father, but of showing to others just how good they are, how righteous they are, and how worthy they think themselves to be of everyone else's worship and adulation. If I could put it in a word, it is unbalanced in the extreme. Both of my daughters have recently taken up bike riding. I'm working diligently as their father to teach them how to balance and work with training wheels. My youngest one is still on training wheels, but my oldest one has now progressed away from training wheels, and, and she's able to actually ride without, without training wheels. It's a highly complicated act. I mean, for most of us in this room, we've been riding a bicycle all our lives. We don't really give it a lot of thought. But if you stop to actually analyze it from a four-year-old or a five-year-old's perspective, we're talking about something very, very significant here. You have two pedals coming off of one crank. One is down and the other is up, and they move around in a circle. What we're asking the four-year-old or the five-year-old, who at that age is already very clumsy and very awkward in their movements, to take their body weight and to position it atop a bicycle, a metal frame, and to coordinate the slight shifting of their weight from one side of that frame to the other side, according, corresponding to the foot as it's pushing down the crank. That's hard to do. Now, we're actually, because of how God has designed us, we're actually capable of doing that. Many of us have been doing it our whole lives, and we don't actually stop to think about it. But from a four-year-old's perspective, when Daddy says, Olive, I need you to shift your body weight slightly to the other side, but not too far, because if you go too far, you'll fall over the other way, but just enough so that as the bike leans ever so slightly this way, you will stay perched atop of it. A four-year-old's response is, huh, what? What are you saying? That makes no sense to them. That's something that they just have to learn. Now, what Jesus says here with regards to the Pharisees and the scribes is that in their approach to their walk with God, they are not balanced. And Jesus' description of these things is that there is something that is more weighty, namely the matters of mercy and justice and faithfulness. Those are elements which would require, metaphorically speaking, that we put a little bit more weight on those things and not so much weight on the opposite pedal of tithing. Jesus is saying that there is an appropriate way to walk with God, and it requires finesse, it requires balance. The Pharisees, in terms of peddling those two things, be it tithing on the one pedal or mercy, justice, and faithfulness on the other pedal, they're not peddling correctly. They think that they are flying down the street on their bike, but they have leaned so far over onto the one pedal that they're really laying on the ground, spinning their wheels. That is the condemnation that Jesus points at them. This happens today. It happens in churches all over the world. What Jesus is saying is that they have inverted their spiritual values. They've told themselves that they're really holy. But those things which matter, they have diminished their significance. And those things which are of lesser significance, not trivial, but lesser significance, they've emphasized those things. I read this past week of an account of a church in the States. Uh, uh, It was a church that over the course of 10 to 15 years exploded from a group of about 100 people to 3,000 people. The members of that congregation largely attributed the success of that church to the the giftedness of the pastor and the pulpit, his preaching and his teaching abilities. 
And, and it was a church that was seemingly, from all outward appearances, just doing everything exactly right. Uh, it was a healthy church. It was on fire for the Lord. And then a stunning accusation came out. One of the younger families in that church accused the pastor of molesting one of their children. And of course, everyone was shocked. It was unbelievable. How could this man who's been pastoring our church for 10, 15 years now actually be guilty of such an accusation? Clearly, this is just some mean-spirited, malcontent uh, family making slanderous accusations that are baseless and without merit. Only problem was after the first accusation came out, it was followed in very short order with four others. And as the evidence was presented, as the authorities got involved, as the investigation proceeded, it became apparent over time that indeed this pastor, as gifted as he was in his rhetorical abilities and his handling of the scriptures, allegedly, supposedly, was not actually walking with the Lord in a holy manner. The elders of his church, when pressed after this whole thing came to trial, said, we always thought that there was something weird about how he approached small children in particular. We always thought that there was something weird about it. But we never asked because of how gifted he was in the pulpit on Sunday morning. Now, they didn't outright know what was happening, but they suspected it. But they turned a blind eye towards the safety and the protection of the most vulnerable of members of their church because of the apparent success that this individual is handing them from the pulpit. A pastor's job is to lead people into freedom in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not to use his position to exalt himself while simultaneously capturing and abusing the weakest among us. It is the elders who elevated one aspect while diminishing another. Straining out gnats, but at the same time swallowing camels. And this doesn't just happen from the highest levels of leadership this also can happen within the pew. I'll tell you another story. Pastor received a call to go and pastor a church. He moved from one part of the country to the other. And of course, the church search committee, the pastor search committee, had gone through all number of different candidates and looked at a number of different resumes and had sensed that the Lord was leading them to call this one particular pastor. He moved from a, a part of the country where the cost of living was relatively inexpensive to another part of the country to take up the pulpit in this particular church where the cost of living was much, much higher than where he had come from. He hadn't fully factored that into his considerations when he agreed to take the position, but it became very apparent very soon on that he wasn't going to be able to survive and support his family of four with the salary that he was offered. So he approached the uh, board, approached the uh, deacons, and he said, I, uh, I, I regret to say this, but I might need a little more money uh, in order to survive. Everybody in the church agreed he was doing a phenomenal job, doing a great job exposing the scriptures. It came time to the business meeting. The deacons brought it forward, and it was quickly motioned 
that that issue should be tabled until next year, which is the church's prerogative. But then that motion was quickly followed by a subsequent motion in which that board of deacons brought to the congregation the issue of the photocopier and their fear that the expensive office equipment that they had was not properly secured, in which they asked the church to set aside money for a brand new state-of-the-art $10,000 security system and to hire a security guard to patrol the church premises at night. Now, you ask yourselves the question, what is the most important thing? Whether or not we can run off photocopies, whether or not we have somebody who's going to be exposing before us the word of God, bringing light and illumination to what the text says. Straining out gnats, swallowing camels. There's no denying you should be faithful in stewarding your resources. You should be faithful in watching after the things that the Lord has given you. You should make sure your photocopier is secure. But at the expense of losing your pastor or watching his children suffer and starve, straining gnats, swallowing camels, these are still things that apply to us today. There are two specific issues that Jesus touches on within this text. The issue of tithing and the issue of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Let's look first at tithing. Tithing is an old practice. Many think that it was something that was laid down in the law by the Lord in which all the nation of Israel would give a tenth of all of the produce and all of their income from the land to the Levites, and then the Levites from among themselves would give a tenth of that from what, they, what, they, what was given to them from the nation of Israel. They'd give a tenth to the priests. So you have the whole nation of Israel giving a tenth to the Levites, and then the Levites giving a tenth of that to the priests. Many people think that this is just the method that the Lord laid down for the nation of Israel in order that there would be financial support for those individuals who ministered on his behalf to his people. But it's actually a very ancient practice that predates the giving of the law. The first mention of it comes from Genesis chapter 14. And it, it, it come, it's an account from the life of Abraham. He rescues his nephew Lot from captivity, and in the midst of that rescue, he worships the Lord. He encounters Melchizedek, which as soon as I say that name, everybody says, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that guy. He's such a mysterious figure. I don't have time to talk about that guy today. Nevertheless, he rescues Lot. It's awesome. Melchizedek shows up, and he says, I'm going to worship God by giving a tenth of everything I've gotten off of this to Melchizedek. It makes a statement in Genesis 14, 20, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That's Melchizedek's word to Abraham. And it says Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, to which we read that and we think this is just a one-off affair that Abraham just did this one time. No, this is a practice that he taught his children. He, of course, has Isaac. Isaac, of course, has Jacob. Jacob gives a tenth of everything that he gets to the Lord as well. We read in Genesis 28, 20 to 22, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Of all that you give me, 
I will give a full tenth to you. Yes, tithing is codified in the law of Israel. Yes, God does utilize tithing to support the Levites and to support the priests. But tithing predates the law. It is something that Abraham practiced. It is something that he taught his sons after him to observe. And in each instance, it is first, foremost, and always an act of worship to the Lord in this regard. They know that they can't do the things that they want to do. They know that they're coming up against difficulties and obstacles which in their own strength they cannot overcome. And they know that it is the Lord who takes care of them and who provides for them. And so they don't trust in their money. They don't trust in their finances. They trust in God Most High. And they demonstrate that in the activity of worshiping Him through giving to Him. That is before the giving of the law. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament... Paul talks about the spiritual gift of giving. Anybody here ever taken a spiritual gifts survey or spiritual gifts uh, test and had the result come back giving? You are a good giver. Keep on giving. Anybody ever read that on any one of those spiritual test surveys or analysis that they've ever taken? You know, it's ironic because the scriptures talk about the sin of greed, more than any other sin, more than adultery, more than any form of sexual impurity, the Bible says that the thing that we should be most concerned about is the spirit of acquisitiveness, the desire to gain more and more possessions. Jesus talks about money more than he talks about hell. You'll find way more references in the teaching of Christ in the four Gospels to the appropriate use of our money than to the eternal reality of hell. He connects love of money with going to hell. There is a connection there. But he warns of that danger more than any other. But giving, though the Lord teaches it, though it is taught in the Scriptures, though it is a necessary act of worship, Giving can still be done in a way that dishonors the Lord. You can give, as these guys gave, in such a way that it doesn't matter if you gave everything or if you gave nothing. In your giving, you have gained nothing with the Father. Any attitude, any heart that uses an act of worship such as giving in order to exalt yourself, is met with Jesus' condemnation. Woe to you. Notice what he says here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 24, blind guides. They are blinded by the fact that they give and they think that their giving makes them right with the Lord. I am so holy, I am so spiritual, I give, I tithe, I even give a portion of my peanut butter and a portion of my pasta. And God's statement says, Jesus' statement is that is a blind guide. Any act of giving, any act of tithing, any act of supporting the church financially, apart from a heart of worship, is useless. 
and it meets with his condemnation. The issue here is the second portion of this text, the matter of mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Look what he says here. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The reason why Abraham was chosen, the reason why Abraham is elected by God to be the great father of faith, the the patriarch of the nation of Israel, is not because Abraham is going to be disciplined in his tithing to Melchizedek. It is because Abraham is going to trust in the Lord. It makes a statement in the scriptures. Again, I would have had these up on the screen this morning. Just listen. God's choice of Abraham from Genesis 18, 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham all that he has promised to him. God's choice of Abraham isn't because Abraham is going to be gung-ho for tithing, but because Abraham is going to be a man of justice and a man of righteousness, mercy. The scriptures talk about it over and over again. The steadfast love of the Lord, slow to anger, abounding, abounding in mercy and compassion and kindness and forgiveness. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He chose Abraham because of Abraham's commitment to do righteousness and justice. And it says in Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And faithfulness, justice, mercy, kindness, faithfulness. Proverbs twenty eight twenty: a faithful man will abound with blessings. But whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Now let's step back and pause for a moment. A faithful man, a man who's true to his God, will abound with blessings. Is that proverb saying that a faithful man will receive blessings from God? It's possible. Or... Is that proverb saying that a man who is faithful to his God will abound with blessings for those around him? Either interpretation could fit the text. The final clause on this particular proverb in Proverbs 28.20, whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So a faithful man will abound with blessings but a man who is quick, who speeds past all of that in order to accumulate wealth, will not go unpunished. The proverb seems to be leaning towards the fact that faithfulness in God's people will result in their abounding with blessings. The proverb seems to be leaning towards the reality that a faithful man is a generous man. A faithful man is a giving man. Which brings me back to the analogy. We've got these guys riding this bike, as it were, where they're pedaling hard on the giving, so to speak, but ignoring the other pedal, which is justice, mercy, faithfulness. In our minds here, do we think that these pedals are disconnected? 
Do, do we think that on the one hand there's giving, but then on the other hand there's justice, mercy, and faithfulness, that we can do the one while ignoring and neglecting the other? Jesus says the weightier matters of the law undoubtedly are justice and mercy and faithfulness. Absolutely. We have to be focused on those more important things. But do we really do those things while simultaneously ignoring giving? Again, Proverbs 28 seems to say that these two pedals are attached to the same crank. A faithful man, a man who is true to God, will abound in blessings. But whoever hastens to be rich, hastens. In other words, just rushes past the whole need to tithe and to give and to be generous. A man who is quick to accumulate and to pile up for himself his own wealth, that man who speeds right on past the discipline and the practice of generosity, he will not go unpunished. Now see, these aren't two separate things. They're attached. Jesus affirms that in this passage. Look at what he says. Verse 23, last sentence. These you ought to have done. He's referencing justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. You ought to have done the more important, more weightier matters of the law without neglecting the others. Church, Jesus is saying, in terms of your spiritual leaders, if they are the type of people that teach you, either by their precept or by their practice, that you can compartmentalize the Christian life, or you've got justice and mercy and faithfulness on the one hand, while putting giving and generosity on the other hand, this is an unbalanced understanding of the scriptures. Because this is a faulty understanding of the Lord God. Lynn read it earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 4, to do all the statutes and all the commandments for who is there, what nation is there that has a God as close to them as our Lord, our God is close to us. And all the nations, when they see all these statutes and all these things that we put into place, will they not say that our doing of these things is an incredible wisdom? This is a nation that is better off than any other nation when they put into practice all that the Lord has commanded them. When we talk about justice and mercy and faithfulness, we're talking ultimately about our ability to trust God. When we talk about giving, what is the incentive to hang on to your money when you need it or you think you need it to take care of yourself? To be stingy to be tight-fisted with the things that the Lord has given you is synonymous with not trusting the Lord. A pastor can be that way. A church can be that way. But if we're to lift high the gospel of Jesus Christ, things like giving and generosity deserve our attention. Things like mercy and justice and faithfulness deserve our attention because we find both in the cross. Does God Almighty show you how much he loves you by dying on the cross for you? Absolutely. There is no doubt. You see the God of the universe pouring out his love, pouring out his righteousness and himself doing justice on the cross. You see that undoubtedly. 
But do you know what else you see? You see sacrifice. You see giving. There is no separating the act of giving, the act of sacrifice, from the act of mercy and faithfulness and justice. Like I said, I've got two daughters. One has advanced to the stage of no training wheels, but the other is still using training wheels. If we don't engage in disciplined giving, we don't fully understand and we don't fully appreciate the momentous gift that was given for us on the cross. We're still riding with training wheels. And by God's grace, he does uphold his people even when they don't give. But he has called us to imitate his son. I think perhaps the most significant difficulty that we always run into in anywhere we go, with any believer, any denomination, any church, it doesn't matter, is the idea that somehow ministry, somehow reaching people with the gospel is something that can be done pragmatically from a business effective management situation. All ministry is costly. All sharing of the gospel is sacrificial. And you do not bring anybody to faith. You do not, by God's grace and through the power of his spirit, lead anybody to Jesus without sacrificing for it. To live the Christian life will require giving, it will require sacrifice. To see fruit in the Christian life will require giving, will require sacrifice. But if you give and sacrifice for the sake of your own exaltation, you've not begun to give because you've missed the goal, which is justice, righteousness, faithfulness, mercy. All of it is to lead us to the weightier, deeper matters of the Father. We come back to where we started in verse 24. Jesus says, these guys are straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Both have to do with ritual impurity. You have to crank both of those pedals to understand what real holiness looks like, to understand what real purity looks like. You know, it's ironic in the United States, you can't actually buy gold bullion from a bank, but you can in Canada. I think that's really cool. The Bank of Nova Scotia, Scotia Bank, uh, they probably are one of the last banks in the world where you can actually buy gold bullion online through their bank website. I, I think that's absolutely amazing. I'm just curious. I'm just, I, I'm curious now. Anybody here ever bought gold bullion? No? Okay, one. Yes, it's a sound investment. I mean, uh, the world's kind of crazy right now. So um, you have financial institutions and you have gold bullion. So I'm not going to knock that in any regard. If you buy a piece of gold bullion from Scotia Bank, the gold will come in a little tiny bar. You can go online and you can pay about $1,700 for a one-ounce gold bar. They will mail it to your house in an unadorned, unassuming brown envelope. A $1,700 gold bar, it's not like a check where it's endorsed to you. If it gets lost in the mail, somebody got lucky, and you got unlucky. It's gold bullion. It goes anywhere. It travels anywhere. It can be sold to anyone. It will come to you. 
It will be approximately 22 millimeters wide, 38 millimeters high, and 2.3 millimeters thick. This one ounce gold bar will be about 24 karat gold, which is to say that it is 99.99% pure. And I want you to stop and think about that for a second. A gold bar, one ounce gold bar that's that small, is going to be 99.99% pure. That means that if you were to find the impurity in that gold bar, you'd have to take that small, tiny gold bar, and you'd have to divide it up into 10,000 pieces in order to find the one that was impure. It would be smaller than the dot at the end of a sentence where you put a period. You'd sort through 10,000 little gold dots looking for the one dot that wasn't gold. It's very difficult to get something that is 100% pure. It's impossible, in fact. And yet, the God that we worship... Is he 99.99% pure? No. Is he 99.9999999% pure? I'm not sure if I counted those nines right, but we're talking about one part in a billion. You'd have to take that little tiny gold bar and it would be impossible to cut it down to that size. And yet the gospel says that what Christ is is 100% pure. He is a God who gives. He is a God who loves. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. He is a God of mercy. And he died to make us that way. The greatest gift of all is that Christ declares us righteous and pure in the Father's eyes. And then he begins the work of transforming us day by day into increasingly more pure, more perfect people. We'll never arrive at 100% purity this side of heaven, but by God's grace, we're pressing on into those things. And as we close today, First Baptist Church, I just want to encourage you. If you've been operating under the mentality that there is a compartmentalization of the Christian life where you can claim to be doing justice and mercy and faithfulness without simultaneously practicing generosity and giving, You're cranking hard on one pedal while ignoring the other, believing the lie that the two are not connected. And you will never, ever progress towards that purity of motive and that purity of love that Jesus shows us on the cross. My encouragement to you is that you press on. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that you give us everything that we need to live, that you have taken care of us, that if you have given your son to redeem us from our sins, there is nothing else that you are not prepared to give in order to meet our needs. Father, help us to believe in you, to trust in you. And Lord, help us to be a people who are concerned about the weightier matters of the law, but who do not neglect the less significant, but still important matters of generosity and giving. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be people who are pure, who are striving towards purity and holiness and balance in our lives, the balance that your son demonstrated perfectly by giving himself on the cross. We pray that you would do that work among us by your spirit. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.